chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 34. This is how it reads. Please stand for the reading of God's word. My apologies. Please ram the state reading of God's word. This is how the scripture reads. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If in the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in, the, in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? How can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may have a seat. Let's, before we dive in, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we just come to you and we're thankful that we get to know you. Father, we're thankful that you are faithful and that you, you, you provide for us. Father, and so as we look at your word, would you prepare the the soil of our hearts, the seed of your word would fall in good soil and produce fruit. Lord, that you would form in us your son, Jesus, that you would produce the fruit of the spirit in our lives. So Father, change the way that we think, change our, our desires. Father, change the way that we live. Be with us, Lord, engage with us through your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. So there's this syndrome out there called Prader-Willi syndrome. Prader-Willi syndrome. It's a, it's a physical syndrome that affects a, just a handful of people annually. It's, it's an odd syndrome. It's someone who has Prader-Willi syndrome never gets fooled. They, they, they never get satisfied. A person with this syndrome can eat and eat and eat and never leave the table fulfilled. 
The danger is that people with this syndrome can literally eat themselves into obesity and into an early grave. Without the ability to get fulfilled or satisfied, they end up destroying themselves. And so Prader-Willis syndrome affects just a handful of people physically annually. I think that many of us suffer from spiritual Prader-Willis syndrome. And what, spray, what spiritual prayer to will I syndrome is, is this picture of someone who's trying to find fulfillment independent of Jesus Christ. And so what they do is they sit at the table of this world, the buffet of this world, and they eat and they eat and they eat. And they realize that nothing in life satisfies. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is that created things were never meant to make us whole. That they were never meant to fulfill us. And like Blaise Pascal says, that we all were created with this God-shaped hole in our hearts, which only Jesus Christ can fill. So as we come to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, he, he, he goes up on the mountainside, sits down, and begins to teach his disciples what many would say was his most famous sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount. And so to give context to this sermon, we see in chapter three that Jesus was was baptized. And then the following chapter, he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days by Satan. And then we see that he calls his disciples to follow him. And right at the end of chapter four, it gives kind of a summary passage telling us that Jesus went through all throughout Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom. Good news. Jesus was preaching good news that a new reality, a new way of life has been offered through him. Good news that the rule and reign of God had had, had broken into human history. Good news that a new king was here and he inaugurated his kingdom here on earth. Good news that a king was here to take your place on the cross to make forgiveness accessible. Good news. Good news that a remedy for this Spiritual pray to will I syndrome is here. Jesus preached good news. And he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. So this is the backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount, the, the kingdom of God. And so the question on the table is, well, what does it look like to live life in the kingdom of God? What, what does it look like someone who is authentically following Jesus as Lord under his rule and reign. And my answer is, look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. So many words Jesus is communicating that if you're to follow me, you're going to live what John Stott calls a counter-cultural life. You're going to be different, distinct, dare I say strange. (laughs) Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to rub up against the grains of society. God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself to be set apart, to be otherworldly. And we see this in the Old Testament. 
We see that God, he, he delivers Israel from their Egyptian slavery, making them his people. And they are to live in such a way that is different from the rest of the world in response to this saving act. And so in Leviticus 18, 1 and 4, look what it says. It says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. So God is saying, you must be different than every other culture, any, any other nation. Don't, don't assimilate to their way of doing things. And then if you look at the following chapter, Leviticus 19, it says, The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire, entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This idea of being holy is this idea of being different. And so you could almost say that God is communicating, be different because the Lord your God is different. But time and time again, Israel, they would suffer from spiritual amnesia, forgetting their cause, a unique people of God in the world. They were assimilating to the status quo, conforming to the culture around them, looking like the rest of the world. So in response, what does God do? He would send prophets reminding them who they were and how to live. And so, friends, there should be no comment. There should be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, you are no different from anybody else. You are no different than anybody else. Those words should just sting. So Jesus, he's saying that if you're going to follow me, you're going to devote your whole life. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount, your, your heart, your motives, your thoughts, your inner life, your public life, your relationships, every part of your life is to be redeemed. And yes, even your relationship with your money and your possessions. Your money and your possessions. Come on now. Pastor Brandon invited me to preach on possessions and money. So he didn't have to. Because he doesn't have to. All right. It was the great Martin Luther who said, typically the last thing to be converted in the Christian's life is their pocketbook, is their pocketbook. And so, friends, the gospel of America says that the more you have, the happier you will be. All right, I'm going to repeat that again. The, the more you have, the happier you will be. One, one French sociologist made this point about the Western world. He says that materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He argues that atheism hasn't replaced culture Christianity. Shopping has. He says we get our meaning in life from what we consume. So most of us would never say this out loud, but we function from the belief that I am what I buy. I am what I wear. I am what what, what brand of phone I have or what type of car or house I have. I think if we were honest... We all subconsciously believe that that more money, which means more stuff, will make us happier. So, friends, Jesus had a lot to say about money. He had a lot to say about possessions. As a matter of fact, 25% of the Sermon on the Mount deals with this theme. 25%. So imagine Pastor Brandon preaching preaching 25% of the time on possessions and money. Woo, y'all will be out. Y'all will be out. 
So Jesus, he, he used the word, verse 24, the word mammon, which refers to, to money, possessions, and materials. And so I'm going to talk about money, and I'm going to use the same materials, but everything falls under that umbrella. So as we look at verse 19 and 24, I think a helpful uh, way to help us remember Jesus' teaching is in twos, in twos. Two treasures, two visions, and two masters. Two treasures, two visions, and two masters. And so let's start in Matthew 6, verse 19. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And so if I were to come to you, imagine 1905 and say, hey, I got this great investment opportunity. It's going to blow you away. It's this big opportunity. It's a, it's a, they're building a ship and it's called the unsinkable ship. It's going to be made out of the best material, have the best china, the best food, the best service. It's going to be great. And you get really excited. You're like, okay, I'm going to invest. But right before you sign, you ask the question, what's the name of the ship again? It's the Titanic. Chances are you're not going to invest because you know this ship ain't going to last. You would be a fool to invest in something that's going to end up at the bottom of the ocean. In short, Jesus is saying, don't invest your time, your money, your energy in things that are going to end up at the bottom of the ocean. Things of this world. Don't don't invest, don't spend time uh, accumulating all this stuff. Things that get old, things that rust, things that go out of style. Don't invest your lives in things that can be stolen out of a parked car. Jesus is saying, don't give in to materialism, which ultimately tethers us, tethers our hearts to the earth, to the temporary. He says, don't invest in the temporary, but invest in the eternal. So the reality is, some of us will spend most of our lives, our time, our energy, chasing after the next paycheck. The nice car, the nice wardrobe, this extravagant lifestyle. And Jesus is saying, it won't last. It won't last. I think we need the mindset of Job who says, naked in, I came from my mother's room and naked I will depart. He's saying you can't take a U-Haul with you when you die. Some of you are like, Pastor, I'm still going to try. I hear you, but I got to find out my own way. So we see here in our text, verse 19 and 20, Jesus, he, he's comparing the durability of both treasures. He says, you still have treasures on earth, man. It doesn't last. It gets old. It goes out of style. Verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so he's saying invest your life, your resources in things that last, things that matter. Invest in your relationship with God, life in the kingdom, serving your church family, being loving to your neighbors. Invest in things that that last. And I love it. In verse 21, Jesus says, if you want to peek behind the curtains of one's heart, look how they spend their money. Look at their uh, paycheck. Look how they spend their money. If you want to learn about someone's relationship with God, if you want to look at what someone worships, look at their relationship with their possessions. Look at their relationship with their possessions. And so two treasures, 
Next, two visions. Verse 22 and 23, Jesus paints this picture of a healthy eye versus an unhealthy eye. And if you have the NIV Bible right in front, if you look down in the footnotes, it says healthy implies generosity, being generous. Unhealthy implies being stingy, being stingy. And so this, this is a figure of speech. It's a way of saying that there are two ways of seeing the world, two ways of seeing the world. This idea of a healthy eye can also mean whole, good, single-mindedly focused on God and one purpose, someone who, who has not attached their possessions. That's a healthy eye. An unhealthy eye can also mean uh, evil eye. That's how some theologians translate it, which portrays someone who is greedy, envious, someone who's trying to accumulate and never thinking about the needs of other people. And so one sight determines what the body does through its hands and feet. And so our, our sight is important. And so it, it, if your eye is in the right place, it says you are full of light. But if your eye is evil in the wrong place, if it's unhealthy, if it's greedy, Jesus says you're full of darkness. So my question is, how is your vision? How do you see the world? How do you view your money, your possessions? Do you see it as, man, everything has been a, is a gift from God. By God's grace, everything has been given to me from God. And I'm just a steward to give it back. Is that how you view the world? Do you have a, a healthy eye? Do you have an unhealthy eye that everything is, is for my consumption, for me, 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 me? So you have two treasures, two visions, and next you have two masters. Two masters. I love it. Jesus, he doesn't say you probably shouldn't serve two masters. He, says you probably, he doesn't say you probably can't, but he says no one can serve two masters. He says it's impossible. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and possessions. And if we're all honest with ourselves, if we examine ourselves, most of us, we, we, we serve God on Sundays and money on weekdays. We, we, we love God with our lips and money with our hearts. We worship God in appearance, but in reality, it's money. So I'm just going to help you out. If, if you have tried to divide your allegiance to God and money, let me make it clear for you, your allegiance is to money. If you're trying to do both, your allegiance is to money. Let me just give it to you straight. Some years ago, pa Pastor Tim Keller, he, he was doing a, a seven-part series um, at a men's breakfast on the, on the seven deadly sins. And I love it. His wife, his wife uh, made a bet with him that the week on greed would be the lowest attending week. You said, it's going to be the lowest attending week. And he's like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? They made a bet. Come to find out she was right. The week on lust, it was packed. The, the week on wrath, it was packed. The week on pride, it was packed. Her point was, is that nobody thinks they're greedy. Nobody thinks they're greedy. And, and as a pastor, I've had plenty of people come to me and confess all kinds of sin. But I've never had someone come to me and say, Pastor, man, I, I'm really spending too much money on myself. I, 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 I think my, my love for, for possessions is harming myself and my family. 
No one comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm just so convicted. That's been too much of my time and, and, and my thinking about how can I get more stuff? Instead of how can I give? How can I bless? I love Genesis 12, um, the mindset that God has blessed Abraham to be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to other people. So God isn't giving you that blessing to be this cul-de-sac, this consumer cul-de-sac, but he's saying, through you, I want you to bless all people. That's the mindset we need to have, that God has blessed you to bless others, to give, to be generous. Greed hides itself. Greed hides itself. And I think living in this culture of this society in America, um, we like to compare ourselves. Ah, well, I don't have as much stuff as they do, or I'm not as rich as that person. The reality is if you're in this room, you're in the upper bracket in the world. All right? And so, again, greed is just so, it could be subtle. It hides itself. And I think that's why Jesus says, watch out for greed. Watch out for greed. Another way you could say it is Jesus saying, watch out for idolatry. One pastor says that the human heart takes good things like successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as a center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. So friends, if if you find your identity and your possessions, if you think you're going to be more secure in life, the more money that you have, if, if this is what you daydream about, it's probably an idol. It's probably an idol. So as we move throughout our text, I love it. Jesus, he, he, he goes through these three teachings of money and possessions, the two treasures, the two visions, and two masters. And look what he does. He takes these three teachings and connects it to worry. To worry. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your, uh, your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? So what Jesus is basically communicating is that we worry about what we worship. We worry about what we worship. Three times throughout this test, this text, Jesus is saying with urgency, don't worry. Or or in another translation, don't do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. So if I could help define anxiety. Fear is our emotional response to an actual threat, something right in front of you. Anxiety is our emotional response to a perceived threat. Anxiety, hear me, happens when earth becomes big and eternity becomes small. We worry when we focus on the temporary and not the big picture. So here's an example. Fear is what you feel when you're 35,000 feet in the air and you're, you're experiencing severe turbulence. Anxiety is what you may feel when you take your seat on the airplane before it takes off. Fear is when you're sitting down with your boss during a, a, a job performance review and, and they're telling you that things aren't going well. Anxiety is what you feel when you're driving to work knowing you have a meeting with your boss. 
So Jesus, he, he goes from talking about money, possessions, uh, abundance, and he bumps it up right against this talk about worry and, and anxiety. And so what Jesus is communicating is that, is that, and this is completely counterculture to the American mindset, he's communicating that, that abundance and possessions don't solve worry. As a matter of fact, the more one has, the more one tends to worry. We have the mindset, if I could just have a little bit more money, I'll be good. If I could just have that house, I'll be good. Just a little bit more. Man, I'll be good. I'll experience real peace. And the irony in America is we're one of the wealthiest nations ever. And simultaneously, we're filled with stress and anxiety. So real quick, I'm just going to walk through this passage, uh, this text real quick. There are three problems we see here with anxiety. One is anxiety is offensive. Two, anxiety is pointless. And three is, is anxiety is worldly. It's worldly. So first, anxiety is offensive. If you look at our text, the, the primary name used for deity in our text is father. Father, you see in verse 26? See, in verse 32, and we can skip all the way back to the beginning of 6 in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. So Jesus, he, he paints this picture of this intimate Father who is deeply concerned with his children's needs. He, he goes so far to say, let, let the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field preach to you. Look how God hooks up the birds. Look how God uh, 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 hooks up the lilies of the field. He says, look how the creator provides for his creatures. He's using this lesser to greater argument that if God provides for the plants and the animals, how much more will our heavenly father provide for our needs? How much more will he provide for his children? I hate to have to say this to y'all, but you're more valuable than your pet. All right, some of y'all, I don't understand it. My in-laws, I'm sorry, but they have dogs, and, and they treat them things like they, they're humans. You're more valuable than your pet. Amen. All right? Amen. You're more valuable than your pet. <laughs> one, of, one of my biggest pet peeves, man, is, is when I'm driving. I'm, I'm driving, and, and whoever's next to me or in the back seat, uh, they're just making comments, just making comments, critiquing my driving. They're making these dramatic movements. They're, they're hanging on to the, the handle, implying that for, like, like my, my driving ain't safe. Drives me crazy. Come on now, it drives me crazy. <laughs> and what they're communicating is this sense of worry. And the reason this bothers me is because this message, the message that you're sending to the driver is I don't trust you. Amen. I don't trust you. <laughs> We're going to need some counseling somewhere over here soon. <laughs> so, so, friends, hear me. When, when we worry, we're communicating to God one message. I don't trust you. I don't trust you. And God is saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who? You're, you're worried about a job? I, prov- I provided for uh, a million people called Israel 
bread manna from the sky. I parted the seas and provided a way. And you're worried about what? Again, we're we're suffering from spiritual amnesia. We forget who God is. We forget his track record. And so when when we worry, it's offensive. Communicating, we don't trust We don't trust in our Father. Secondly, anxiety is pointless. I'm going to be short with this. Verse 27, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So I'm just going to to be straight. Anxiety and worry never got you that job. Anxiety and worry never put money in your account. Anxiety and worry never got your kid to act right. Anxiety and worry never got you out of that situation. Actually, plenty of studies show that anxiety and worry actually does more harm to you than good. It affects your body more than it helps you. So anxiety is useless. It's pointless. And so anxiety is offensive. It's pointless. And thirdly, anxiety is worldly. Good verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear? Here it is. For the pagans run after all these things, and their heavenly Father knows that you need them. So what Jesus is saying is is that people who don't have a relationship with God run after these things. The term run after in the Greek can be translated obsessed over. So so when we worry, we're, we're obsessing over this world. You are joining the company of the ungodly. You're joining the, the, com- the company of the ungodly. Instead of being counterculture, you're actually conforming to the patterns of this world, obsessing over worldly matters. You're, you're, you're marinating in the crock pot of distrust. So what we need to do is, as believers, we need to preach to ourselves. The most influential preacher in your life is yourself. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Preach this text to ourselves. You're more important than birds. You're more important than the lilies of the field. That we have a heavenly father who knows what you need. You've been adopted into this family. So you have two treasures, two visions, two masters. I think here you could say you have two obsessions. Two obsessions. So verse 32 and 23, I'm going to end with these passages. For, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus is communicating that you can't obsess over two things. You can't be obsessive over the world and, and, and these worldly matters. But he says, seek first his kingdom. You could sum up the whole Christian life in verse 33. Seek first his kingdom. So we see in the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying for God to bring his kingdom here on earth. God's action is primary. Here, human action is in focus. Verse 33 Seek first his kingdom. So so the goal of the Christian quest is to seek 
pursue, obsess over Jesus' kingship in every part of our lives. In your job, seek first. In your family, seek first. At school, seek first. In that relationship you're in, seek first. When you go to the grocery store, seek first. When life gets hard, seek first. And with your money and your possessions, seek first. Seek first. The idea of kingdom is his rule and reign. I love it. He says, and all these things will be given to you as well. All these things will be given to you as well. The the story is told of an explorer who is leaving the, the presence of a queen. And the queen called him back because she was trying to negotiate with him. She, she wanted him to go on this exploration. And she, said, she says, I, I would love uh, to send you on this, explora- this exploration, but he says, I'm trying to start this new business. I've got to take care of this new business, and I'm afraid, I'm worried that if I leave this business, it all will collapse. So she says, where is your business? He says, oh, it's just right down the street here in London. She says, don't you understand that I rule London? that I'm in control. Therefore, if you take care of my business, I will take care of yours. That's Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom. Another way of saying it is seek first God's will in every area of your life. And I love it. Connie, Connie pointed to it. It doesn't say that God will give us everything we ask for, or get us out of every bad situation in our life. I mean, if, if I were to give my daughter everything she asked for, I, that would not make me a good parent. That would actually probably make me abusive. It says he knows what we need and he will provide. God, God is a good father who, by the way, is more concerned with our development to be more like Jesus and his glory than what we want. He's more concerned with those two things than our happiness. We need to learn what, I just read this yesterday in Daniel 3, what the three Hebrew boys said in Daniel 3. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we know that you're going to throw us into this fiery furnace. And our God is able. We love to preach that. Our God is able. Hallelujah. Y'all ready? Our God is able. But we don't, want to, we don't like to preach the second part of what they said. But even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't, and friends, you know this, God had an even bigger headache than the fiery furnace. He, he had a headache that you and I, we worked up this, this debt that could not be paid because of our sin. And he asked the question, how am I going to get them out of this jam? He said, the, the bill has to be paid. And Jesus said, I'll pay the bill. Wow. Jesus said, I'll die the death they should have died. And on his way to the cross, Jesus, he pit stops at the garden, and, it's, and he's tempted with anxiety and worry. Because he knows what's going to happen to him. He knows the weight that's going to be put on his shoulders. And look, look what he does. He turns it over to God. He, he, he prays. He says, Father, if there's any way you can take this from me, Not what I will, but what you will. And what happens after Jesus emerges from the garden, after obsessing on God? 
He's this picture of peace. This picture of peace. And on that cross, he, he shouted out, it is finished. It is finished. Which means that if you, are, if you are in Jesus Christ, what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It applies to you and it applies to me. It is finished. So now we should have hope and be people of peace. We know how the story ends. He's victorious. So, Father, we, we come to you and we're, we're thankful. Father, we, we confess that we don't even realize how much you've provided for us. We're oblivious to it. We, we, we don't see, we don't think about your goodness, and how you've provided and how you've sustained and how you've showed up time and time again. So, Father, we, we just focus on your character this morning. God, that you are, you are good and that you are consistent and you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Father, in the gospel, you said that it is finished. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. But we have hope that one day we will be with you for all eternity. That we will have new bodies, be in a new heaven, a new earth. There'll be no more stress and no more anxiety and pain. Father, you're a good father. You know what we need. Purge us of our materialism. Purge us of our idolatry. Convict us. Holy Spirit, help us to hold our possessions loosely. Help us not to find our identity in our stuff. But Father, I pray our security would be the fact that we are in Jesus. That we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are adopted. We've been made righteous and made holy. Father, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, I pray that we'd all have a sense of, I can't do this. Which would ultimately point us to the cross and the need of a Savior. So, Father, help the Bridge Church uh, to be a, a kingdom people that is different, that is unique. Lord, the, uh, the church that you've placed in this community, I pray that people uh, would see this church and praise uh, you. Father, that they would be salt and light in this community, that they would see their good deeds and praise the Father. I pray that the bridge would spotlight you. Father, be with us as we go throughout today that Matthew 6.33 would be our anthem. That we would seek first in every area of our lives your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.